community, perhaps? Mm -hmm. sure, right. Surely seven not. Seven o'clock. Welcome, everyone. If you want to turn on your camera and join us and let us see your beautiful faces, please feel free to do that. It's not a requirement, of course. It just makes it a more friendly environment rather than just seeing people's names. But feel free to do what you want to do. I know some of you may not be feeling the best today and don't want to share what not the best looks like to the public. We're so happy you're here. You're here. We're so lucky to have Dr. Nicola Ducharme with us. She is the Lyme expert. She's written four Lyme books. Do I have that right? Or is it five? Four, four, four yeah. Lyme books, including Lyme Brain. And Lyme Brain is coming out soon on audiobook, isn't it's it? It's already out on Audible, yeah. It's already out. All right. Yeah. That's the way I do my books now. So I'll be definitely downloading that in the very near future. We're going to talk tonight about Lyme and covid and we're also going to talk about how to be a more effective advocate for those in the community who have Lyme disease. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to tell you a little bit more about some of the trainings that we offer in case you feel called to move forward in your education and sharpen the tools that you have in your clinical toolbox. And allow me to introduce Dr. Nicola. We have a history at this point now. We can I can say that. I first met her when I was producing Lyme Ninja Radio. And some of you may have noticed if you were a listener that we stopped doing the podcast. And one of the reasons I stopped is I was hearing the same pitch, sales pitch from different doctors, different supplement people, different device advocates, and everybody had the silver bullet for Lyme disease. And if that were the case, we wouldn't be on this call tonight. There is, I got bad news. There is no silver bullet. What you need is a comprehensive approach to it. And that's what Dr. Nicola brings to the table. She's been working with the complicated multi-diagnosis Lyme cases that don't yield to a simple answer. They take time, they take commitment, they take perseverance. And now we've got COVID that we're throwing into it. So that's why later on, I had to get with Dr. Nicola and say, look, we need to bring what you're doing and teach more practitioners how to do this. We need to get the word out that Lyme is not a game of tic-tac-toe, it's a game of chess. It's a, not a sprint, it's a marathon. And to change the expectations out there, to change the expectations out there and to give people hope. So if you, Go back and now check your feed on Lyme Ninja Radio. You'll see that we, we're starting to publish those again. And that's the main thrust of the episodes these days is to give you hope, to give patients hope. Because you can heal from this disease. It's absolutely, even if you're in the depth, it is possible. But it's not simple. It's not simple. And Dr. Nicola is one of the shining stars. She's a bright light in this area, and she brings so much experience, knowledge, and just frankly, common sense. So I'm just thrilled that she's giving us some time this evening to talk about Lyme and COVID. So Dr. Nicola, the floor is all yours. Hi, thanks, McKay. Um, yeah, so the what we're going to do tonight is just, you know, we are going to talk a little on Lyme and COVID and what I've been seeing in my practice with those Two things together and um and then also we're going to talk about as mckay said like being an advocate for lyme like like figuring out how to recognize lyme and just the the complexity of it and the magnitude of the problem 
And so, um, yeah, I'm very, very passionate about working both with patients and helping patients to get their quality of life back and just kind of work through all the nuances of Lyme and all the different complications with hormone imbalance and um, mold illness and all all the things. Um, But I'm also really passionate about working with practitioners and training up a new um, a new army of practitioners because there is so much need and Lyme is a growing problem as we'll see tonight. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I'm very, very dedicated to the whole Lyme world on both sides, on the patient side and on the practitioner side. So um, whether you're listening tonight as a patient or if you are here as a practitioner, hopefully there will be something for, for both of you in, in this. And, um, and this is just the beginning of the journey. We've got lots of information to share and, and things like that. So the first thing I will go ahead and share my screen. And Kimberly, thank you so much. She's going to get the line brain on audio, audible. And so that's one of the one of the purposes of creating it was because people with line brain have a harder time reading. And so my publisher, um, Brian Rosner, he and I were like, oh, yeah, let's try it. Let's do a book on audible. And we'll just sort of see how it goes. And he was like, which one should we do first? And I'm like, Pretty sure people with Lyme brain are the ones that are going to appreciate the, the audio more. So that's why we did that. And I actually narrated it myself because I love it when I listen to audibles or audio books and it's the actual author that's narrating it. So um, I had fun with that process. So I hope you enjoy it. All right. So, yes, we are on a mission to change the course of chronic Lyme disease. And you know, obviously in my day-to-day private practice is how I do that with patients. And then um, through the Lyme Academy that we've created, I am now able to work with other practitioners and impact um, more people through qualifying, certifying, training more practitioners. So um, what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to talk about what's working now, just what I'm observing in practice um, since I'm, you know, still very much in the trenches with Lyme patients day in, day out. Um, we're going to talk about how to be part of the solution and we're going to talk about what's next for you. Like if there's further information we can provide for the training we can provide and um, we will have time for some Q&A and then um, there'll be some free stuff for you, which is always nice. So let's look first at um, what's working now. So just to give you a bit of an overview of kind of how we're looking at this whole situation, there's there's different phases in in the Lyme journey. And so part of the first phase is just sort of developing that sixth sense for Lyme and figuring out, like for practitioners to figure out, like what's what are the first steps? Like how do I even get Lyme on my radar? Like how does this even, how do I know that this is a thing and learn more about it? So at the more basic levels, we do um, kind of like more of an advocate training where we're just trying to, you know, point to people, point people in the right direction of where to get information and how we can help the whole community as a whole. And there's different elements to that, looking, you know, at the right tests. And then we go into a stage where, you know, people are starting to um, look a little bit deeper. And one of the things that I've seen, and we're seeing this now with COVID, but it relates very much to Lyme too, is the medical PTSD. Like, Lyme's the most politicized disease since HIV. We know that for sure. Um, The difference is when HIV first came around, like back in the 80s, it got so much coverage, so much media coverage, so many research dollars, like 
so many celebrity kind of statements and, you know, concerts to raise money. And I mean, just this huge, huge, like push for information and research and solutions. And now people are living with HIV, like it's not the life threatening illness that it once was. And yet with Lyme, we don't see that movement. We don't see the research. We don't see the coverage. We don't see the, you know, it's still very much like we're dragging along with some of the sort of prior conventions of the Infectious Disease Society of America and, and those kinds of things. So what we, we as, I'm part of the ILADS group of practitioners, and so what we're trying to do is really, like, push through and figure out, like, how can we help this this group of people? How can we help this community, this growing group of people and, you know, help people to regain belief in their ability to recover and overcome, you know, their health challenges. And then uh, McKay and I have taken it further, and this is where we really end up in the Lyme Academy doing very, very deep training and mentoring and um, really helping practitioners to get not only competent in treating Lyme, but confident in treating Lyme. So that's kind of the mission that we're on. So let's talk a little bit about COVID and Lyme. I'm going to stop screen sharing because we're going to do this in a very um, informal kind of way. I'm just going to share for a couple of minutes what I'm seeing, and then um, I'd be interested if we have practitioners who are also seeing COVID patients or already seeing Lyme people, what you're noticing. Um, hi, Tina. I recognized you. I, I was like, there's Tina. Um, so, yeah. So, um, you know, th this there's a whole thing about long COVID, right? So there's two different sort of parts, two pieces of this conversation. One is that, you know, COVID is all sort of new and swept us off our feet. And we didn't really know what was going on. And we're all, we've sort of mostly been playing catch up ever since then. I think there's a lot of information that's in the shadows that we're not really exposed to. Um, but, you know, be that as it may, we've got COVID and we've got long COVID. And what was interesting is that in the Lyme world, when, and I, when I say that as a practitioner, I'm referring to the ILADS practitioner world as opposed to the, like, Infectious Disease Society of America, which is really, like, part of the, part of the problem in the whole thing overall. But in the Lyme world, there was this kind of thought of, like, okay, so people are is this really long COVID? Like, and I'm sure there are cases where it is the, the COVID virus that's, you know, creating chronic health problems and, you know, ongoing issues. But there was also this thought of like, you know, I bet you any money that there are people for whom COVID has triggered tick-borne infections. And this comes down to the premise that, and it's a belief of mine that there are a bajillion people walking around out there with Borrelia bacteria and some of these tick-borne pathogens in their system. And we're going to look at some of the statistics in a few minutes, but I mean, it's crazy. The numbers of people who, the increase in diagnosis, but also the numbers of people who are not getting diagnosed. And so we have this whole thing and, you know, I've worked with plenty of couples along the way and I've had you know, a lot of conversations with couples about, well, is Lyme sexually transmitted and what should I, how should I handle that? And what does this mean for my partner? And yes, there is evidence of sexual transmission of Lyme. But if that was, if that is the case, why aren't more couples sick? Right. And certainly I have patients who are couples and they are both sick. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. 
But I also have patients who are very sick having intimate relationships with people who are not sick. Right? So how do we explain that? Is it not sexually transmitted? Mm, there is evidence that it is. Um, so the other possible explanation would be that the partner could be exposed without actually coming down with an illness, okay? And that would require them to have a robust immune system, right? If they didn't have a robust immune system, it could bring them down. I will also say that in my years of working with people, there have been many, 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 many cases where people reported maybe a symptom or two, not quite optimal energy or just a little bit of something not being quite right until something happened. And that something is some kind of physical or emotional stressor on the body. It could be a car accident. It could be a divorce. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be a surgery, anesthesia. It could be childbirth. Like something that toppled the system to where the immune system could no longer contain the infection and the person became highly symptomatic. So I have heard those stories time and time again. So what if COVID was also one of those stressors? What if COVID was the thing that tanked the immune system to where it couldn't maintain its stronghold over these other infections that were going on? And we'll never really know for sure because we don't have the before and after testing, right? And we know, I mean, long COVID is a thing. I'm not saying that every case of long COVID is Lyme. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I do believe that there have been cases where COVID triggered um, the activation of chronic tick-borne illness. So we have to keep that in mind because, and especially in sort of more, you know, allopathic medical realms, like long COVID, just wait, you'll get over it. Like mm, not much to be done, right? But what if somebody was impacted by tick-borne infections, which are treatable, not quick and easy, but treatable. So from a practitioner standpoint, raising the awareness of Lyme and its impact and having more practitioners be like, hmm, I wonder, might open the door to more people getting accurately diagnosed and getting some help. So that's the first piece. The other piece, so that's sort of been people that may not have known they have Lyme. The second group is people that do know they have Lyme. And I am finding even more so recently than two to three years ago, but I think probably more so because people are starting to get out and about more and be less isolated and less in masks and those kinds of things. I am finding that some of the viruses that are floating around right now, not just COVID, but flus and even cold viruses, are really triggering a flare of people's symptoms. And so that's the other piece too, is my Lyme folks, if they do get some of these other viruses, are just noticing their Lyme symptoms are flaring up. 
And it may well take them longer to get over those common viruses that somebody else might throw off in a few days. It might take two or three weeks. But it also points to if Lyme is flaring, what do we need to do about that? We need to adopt more strategies to reduce inflammation. We need to try and quell the cytokine response, right? All those cytokines that kick up the inflammation and feel, make you feel terrible. So, and we need to enhance detoxification. We need to make sure, you know, do we need to back off antimicrobials or do we actually even need to power through with antimicrobials? Are we seeing a co-infection stirring up that we haven't really recognized yet or treated yet? There's different things that can be at play here. And the, the core thing, the key thing is just the awareness. Because if we have more awareness and we know we can see better what's going on, whether it's our own health from a patient standpoint or, or in our patient's clients from a practitioner standpoint, then we, we're better empowered to actually doing something about it. So, you know, back in the day, my patients were all saying to me, oh gosh, should I get the vaccine? Should I not get the vaccine? And this is not going to become a conversation about whether the vaccine is right, wrong, evil, indifferent, whatever. I'm going to just tell you my observations in my patients. My patients who got COVID back in the day didn't really necessarily seem to fare a lot better or worse than anyone else. Like the risk factors of metabolic uncertainty, like overweight, obesity, those kinds of things were in play either way. Okay? But I think now, but I think it's also that more people were more isolated. People were being very, very careful. People were not going out. And here we are three years later and we just can't maintain that. Like it's just, it's not healthy. And I realize that chronic Lyme patients are more isolated than other people anyway. They don't have the wherewithal, the energy and the stamina and whatnot to go out and do a lot, a lot of the time. Everyone's got a very different level of functioning. So some are still working and doing all the things and some are pretty much housebound, right? But what I'm seeing now um, is that I am seeing some stir up of Lyme symptoms um, with some of these viral infections. So what I'm doing with my folks, like I said, I'm looking at, you know, supporting inflammation pathways. I'm looking at supporting detoxification pathways. And there are times where I'm doing antiviral therapy. For me, I do that naturally. I have great herb, herbs that are antiviral. We have lorisidin that's antiviral. We have some great, you know, um, essential oils that are antiviral. Because like with people who've got Paxlovid, and I will say this about Paxlovid, I'm seeing some really funky reactions to it. And I'm seeing some rebound dependency on Paxlovid when people take it for the five days and then go off it and get so sick again. And then they have to take it again. And then they go off it and get sick again. And it's just a sort of round and round. So I prefer to do the antiviral piece naturally. But suffice it to say, in my folks that I'm working with that have chronic Lyme, I do, um, I do look at the viral piece, but I also look at the Lyme piece and the Lyme flare and what's going on with that and co-infections and what we need to do about that. Okay, so it's not that COVID is more severe in Lyme patients than, than anyone else. That's not what I've seen historically. Um, but I am seeing now that these viruses are taking them longer to throw off 
and they are getting stirred up on the Lyme front. So where they may recognize the viral symptoms different from their Lyme symptoms, right? A lot of people can be like, oh yeah, because I that viral, like the acute viral stage, I had fevers and chills and I felt this and that and the other, not necessarily how they feel with their Lyme. And then those kind of quieten down. And then every symptom they recognize is their Lyme, co-infection, whatever, flared up. So that's how we can kind of make a bit of a distinction. So it's been interesting to see that. And it's been interesting that I'm seeing that more the last six months than I have in the last three years. But I do think, like I said, I think that's more of a question of people's, um, you know, not being so isolated, being around more people, doing more things is probably like what's kind of triggering that. So do we have any practitioners? Well, firstly, Sticks, did you have a question? Oh. McKay, I, I need to ask, yeah. Or do we want to do questions at the end? What What do you think, McKay? It's It's up to you. Okay. Well, Sticks has had her hand up for a little bit, so let's see. Yep, so she's able to unmute now, or he. Maybe not. Maybe the hands Okay, I'm right. just going to go, yep, to okay. the accident. All right. Oh, okay, in the chat. Um. Do you include LGBT community when you discuss sexual transmission? Yes, because it's, I mean, the same premises apply, right? If, if there's traces of Borrelia in semen and there's traces of Borrelia have been found in vaginal fluids, it doesn't matter necessarily if it's male, female, 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 female. I mean, it's going to be the same, the same possibility of transmission. All right, so let's move on now and talk about some of the the whole, you know, challenge of Lyme and what we're kind of what we're overcoming um, in the world of Lyme and then sort of looking at how we can be, how we can be good advocates, how we can make, actually make a difference. So let's talk about being part of the solution. So I already talked about like de developing a bit of a detection, I guess a Lyme sixth sense. So that's part of the screening phase. Now, you know, from a practitioner standpoint, whether or not you're working with Lyme yet, recognizing that it exists, recognizing that in the people you're working with or dealing with or commun communicating with, this is an issue that can cause so many widespread symptoms. And so even just, you know, at this level that we're talking about tonight, like being an advocate, you can make such a big difference. Like even just knowing like, well, maybe, maybe it's Lyme. What do you think? Like maybe we need to get you some testing or maybe we need to find you a practitioner that knows how to test you effectively, right? Because there's so much denial of Lyme in the regular allopathic medical community that even when patients, I mean, I could tell you some horror stories. Patients go to their doctor and go, I think I might have Lyme. No, you don't. Don't be ridiculous. Well, but I read and all my symptoms fit. There's no Lyme here. There's no chronic Lyme. There's no Lyme in Texas. There's no Lyme in Australia, blah, blah, blah. And so people are being like scolded and sent away from practitioners for even bringing it up. And then even in some practitioners that like a doctor will begrudgingly order a Lyme test, that's a whole other conversation for a different training. But I mean, to talk about Lyme testing and what's effective and what's not and what tests to order. And I mean, I could dive so deep into that but that tonight's not the night for that um but then you know there's a lot of false negatives on that on the basic tests they order so then they go well see i told you you don't have line it's negative 
And even more ridiculous, I've had some people who actually did test positive and their doctor was like, it's a false positive. You don't have Lyme. Don't be ridiculous. So like either way, like what, however it pans out, these people are being sent away with being told they're ridiculous for even bringing it up. So, you know, even to be that person that says, hmm, it's a possibility. Like, let's look into that. Or where do I need to send you? Or what, could I just learn enough to know what tests to order? Could I learn enough to know what first steps to take? Right? Versus just kind of denial or just, you know, pushing it all, pushing the idea away, which is really such a disservice to people. And then, you know, as patients, as fellow patients, I mean, I've heard this from so many of my folks. Like once you get a Lyme diagnosis and you know what's going on with you, don't you see it in so many people around you? It's like when you buy a red car, then, you know, all the cars on the road are red. Once you, once you understand Lyme and get some kind of, you know, insight into what it can do, then all your friends with chronic fatigue, your friends with fibromyalgia, your friends with, you know, name one of a hundred diagnoses. You're like, oh, so what if you could be the person that asked them, hey, have you considered this? That might change your life. Just knowing enough and being open enough to say, hey, I think this might be a thing for you. Let's explore. Could change another person's life, change the trajectory of their health care to where they could be getting treatment. Like I said, line treatment, not quick or easy. No one's saying it is. But there's only one thing worse than having Lyme and that's having Lyme and not knowing it. So that's kind of the first step that we're dealing with here. And that's why we love doing this advocate training because, you know, again, for patients or practitioners, just being part of that solution, just being, being that voice in someone else's life and, you know, being there to support them and, and really trying to help them and support them in figuring out what's going on with their health. So what, where we are now, what we're dealing with. So, I mean, there, there's, there's good news and bad news. There is some, you know, you see some more articles, you see some news things, you think, oh, wow, good, okay, well, this is encouraging. Like this one here about an atypical case of Lyme disease presenting with Lyme carditis. And that was just from March this year. This is very recent. So, yay, we want to get case reports. We want to get, even if it's, you know, just a case report, but this is in a peer-reviewed journal. So this is good. We want this information getting out. And you can see here in the abstract, it specifies his original diagnoses were not in, of infectious origin. So this is one case where somebody's actually, it's actually sort of getting recognized, this window down here, that, that Lyme disease is much more common than one thinks. And we'll look at some of the numbers in just a minute. But that person provided, presented with Lyme, Lyme carditis. How many, how many standard allopathic medical doctors, cardiologists, so that's where they would end up, know enough to be like, oh, Lyme disease could cause this? Probably in less, in the northeast of the United States, probably more so, but in other areas, very few. And this person did test positive on standard, not very sensitive labs. So this person got really lucky in this respect. But look at the spending. And I'd love to see HIV on this chart too, by way of comparison, but look at the spending on vector-borne diseases in 2018. 
So malaria, and this is in the United States, this is not in endemic malaria countries. In the United States, malaria got $118,823. So that this is coming out per patient. This is like the equivalent per patient. You can see it's a small group of patients, 1,700. West Nile virus, slightly, slightly more sexy, 13,600 with about 2,600 cases. Lyme disease, estimated new cases, new cases diagnosed just in the 2018 in the US, 476,000. And yet look at the pathetic amount of money spent for a patient. So it's really, really sad. And this is where we're running into problems because there's just not enough research being done. It's just not getting enough attention. Conversely, we see in the other direction, the number of estimated cases. This is published by the Bay Area Lyme Foundation, which is a foundation that is doing amazing things in terms of research and trying to get grant money and things like that. But we've got the number of CDC reported cases, and then we've got the CDC estimated total diagnosed cases. So look at that. The darker greens, the number of reported cases, the, the lighter greens, the estimated cases. And it's just wild to see, firstly, the growth of that over the last 20 years or so, but also the discrepancy between the two numbers. So if we look at it this way, they have about a 10% success rate in actually diagnosing accurately and getting reported cases. Now, bear in mind also, and again, this whole question of lab testing is, is a whole big wormhole, but... The CDC has very strict criteria of what it recognizes on lab work to be considered positive. And so that's also part of the problem that they're not getting accurate information because they're looking at such a tiny, tiny piece of, of the puzzle. So we're looking at about 430,000 misdiagnosed or undiagnosed cases. And that's, that is in the United States. And don't get me started about what's going on in the rest of the world. Like my poor, my poor Aussie brothers and sisters, like it, they're in worse shape there than we are here in the US. There is zero government recognition of Lyme. There is zero help. All the doctors that I used to co-manage patients with have all had their license restricted or taken away. It's very, very sad. So there is a human toll to this, you know, and some, there are some famous people who are, you know, impacted by Lyme. You know, Shania Twain, Justin Bieber, um, Sandy Stosa was an American, excuse me, American Australian tennis player who was impacted by chronic Lyme. Went on to get treated and come back in the game, I will say. Good for her. But, you know, but a lot of people are struggling to find affordable treatment. They're struggling to you know, get any treatment beyond the basic infectious disease society of America, like 14 days of antibiotics or, you know, maximum 21 days, 30 days of antibiotics. It's really hard to find practitioners that are, you know, that are really Lyme literate. And part of our mission, McKay and I, is, is to, you know, be a positive influence in that, to actually be really working to try and train up more practitioners so that we have more a greater impact and there's less people struggling and suffering for, for less time. So, um, so with that, I'm just gonna, well, let me, hold on, let me go back here for a sec. 
we do want to just get questions and thoughts and feedback. Let me just um, let me just go through the rest of this, and then we'll come back to Q and A at the end. So, how did we get here? Poor primary care diagnostic skills. Okay, this this is part of the advocacy, the triage kind of piece, is not recognizing the the symptom picture that can come with chronic Lyme. A lot of that also has to do with how medicine is specialized these days. So. You know, the poor primary care doc has like, what, seven minutes with their patient to try and, you know, triage. That's really all they're doing. Send out to this specialist, send out to here. Um, but Western medicine is broken down into specialties. We have cardiology, we have neurology, we have psychiatry, we have rheumatology. So every specialist is looking at one specific part of the body or one body system, right? Medicine is not really set up today to look at the whole person. And so... That's part of what I love about naturopathic medicine, and that's one of the, the premises, the philosophies of naturopathic medicine is to treat the whole person. But part of the issue here has been, you know, the lack of recognising and diagnosing early. The second thing is this magic bullet fallacy, like 14 days of doxycycline is going to fix it all, right? And the IDSA still claims that today. And frankly, they don't even recognize chronic Lyme. So they don't believe that, that Lyme can survive at all beyond 14 to 28 days of antibiotics. And if you look at their guidelines, I mean, it literally says that, well, not literally, but it figuratively says that anything beyond that is really like all in their head. It's, they call it post-Lyme syndrome. It's not ongoing infection. And that's just simply not true. The, the whole like just take the doxy for two weeks and you'll be fine is just simply untrue. So then the IDSA guidelines, as I've mentioned, they're the ones that are promoting just the short course of antibiotics. They don't really recognize cr the chronicity of Lyme. Um, and they really believe that the, the, the short course of antibiotics is the treatment and it's successful every time. They also believe that Lyme is very hard to contract, which we know it's not, um, that it's easy to diagnose, which again goes back to that whole thing of like the lab tests are just not sensitive enough. And it's easy to treat. 14 days of doxy and you'll be fine. Do a course of amoxicillin, you'll be fine. And don't we all wish it was that easy? Like on the patient side and the practitioner side, we all wish it was that easy. So the, the question then, the more important question is how do we get out of here? Well, sadly, I don't think it's going to be the IDSA docs. Like the Infectious Disease Society of America does not look like they're going to pivot anytime soon. So we cannot depend on them for a way out of this. We have to be more creative, right? We have to be, we have to be willing to pivot. We have to be like looking for, to be resourceful, to find the answers um, and just keep on going. Okay. And I talked about this earlier today. A, we've got to be resourceful and really look, okay, we're not getting that information from the CDC, from the IDSA. That's not where we're going to get it. Where are we going to get it? Who can we align with? Right? And there are some great groups out there, some great advocacy group. Like I said, Bay Area Lyme is like really like very research focused. In ILADS, the International Lyme Associated Disease Society, like there are good organizations out there that are doing the good things and fighting the good fight. So we want to look at, you know, how we can help um, get more people diagnosed accurately and get more people connected with the help they need. So, 
you know, we want to sort of try and overcome some of these roadblocks too. Like there's no lime in Southern California. There's no lime in Oregon. There's no lime in, you know, insert state or city or whatever, which is, I, I, there's lime everywhere. It's everywhere in the country. It's probably everywhere around the world. Okay. Now, granted, there's more in some places than others. I'm in San Diego. I have had patients bitten by a tick and contracted acute Lyme disease, bullseye rash, the whole bit, 10 minutes from downtown San Diego. But yet, there's probably still less Lyme here than Central California, Northern California. And then maybe there's still a little bit less there than Philadelphia, Connecticut, New York. I mean, there's certainly areas where there is Lyme has a stronger hold. But to say that there's no Lyme present in a certain area is just misleading. Okay, we talked about the Infectious Disease Society of America with the claim of one course of antibiotics. And then a lot of people just misdiagnosed, mislabeled. Chronic fatigue syndrome, what is that? Like, is that a thing? It's a label. It's a description of a set of symptoms. It's not an explanation for why the symptoms occur. It's not an underlying cause. So we want to get to the underlying cause and again, sadly, medicine these days, especially in the insurance model, when, you know, doctors are struggling to make some, get something done in their seven minute allotment, it's not designed for that either. It's designed for symptom control. So the simple steps, there's some great screening tools. Dr. Horowitz, who's a big, big, probably one of the better known Lyme clinicians right now, he has a Lyme assessment, takes five or six minutes to fill out. It's a paper version, there's an online version that can help people to sort of get an assessment of their symptoms. Then the second pass is the clinical assessment. So with a practitioner, with a provider that knows enough about Lyme to be able to say, yeah, that sounds like Lyme, right? Lyme is a clinical diagnosis backed up by lab work and hopefully backed up by good lab work. And I can definitely teach all about how to get the good labs and avoid the, the not great labs. So then we want to look at signs and symptoms too of co-infections, not just of Lyme, of co-infections. And then, you know, like I said, with the misdiagnosis, the other conditions that have been assigned to a certain person can get in the way. And yes, doctors need to give an ICD-10 code, you know, to bill insurance. It's got to, it's got to have a label. That's the way the system is designed but that can miss a lot of things, right? So that is our goal is to help people move from, hmm, I wonder if it's Lyme to looking at objective information and subjective information. We want to take, we want to combine the, the patient's experience, which is very real and very true, but it's subjective. Of course, when we're talking and describing our own symptoms and what we experience, it is subjective. And then we wanna combine that as much as possible with objective information, which may be, you know, the, the lab work, for example. And then we wanna put those things together. So one, you know, one of the things, like I said, is, you know, we are very passionate about helping people move through this roadmap and not get stuck and not get sort of thrown out because there's a practitioner that doesn't understand. There's a practitioner that doesn't have any knowledge and or any willingness, any awareness. I'm totally fine with a practitioner being like, 
you know, I don't know anything about it, but let me let me look into who does. We're okay with I don't know, but let me see who does. What we're not okay with is like, no, absolutely not. You're being ridiculous because that's where people get damaged, right? Having the possibility of like, maybe this is going on for you. Let's follow this up. Let's keep you going through this funnel, if you will, of information gathering. And that's how we make a difference. So we work with practitioners to help them through that funnel. And if they want to go all the way and get absolutely highly qualified, confident, competent treating line, managing cases, then we have that. But we also work with people who are like, I want to know enough to point people in the right direction. I want to know enough to be helpful. It may not be my calling to be that person, but I want to at least be able to advocate for people and get them moving in the right direction. So in terms of what's next for you, we have our advocate training that you've been part of tonight and we're very excited for that. Um, and then McKay, I will hand back to you to talk about um, our other levels, our other levels of training, and then we can come back to Q&A. So you want to do that now and then Q&A afterwards? Sure. Okay. Oh, no, so you'd rather do Q&A now? It's up to you. Let's do, let's, let's do Q&A now. Okay, let's sure. Let's do Q&A now. And then just, just so you know, if a couple of things, we've got some information on some free stuff you can have, actually have samples of the free stuff at the end. And then we also are going to just do a little introduction, super short. It's more of an invitation. It's not a sales pitch at all. So don't worry about that, about uh, training that we have, further training that we have, both the certification course that we have, which is our big course. And then I'm, I might call it basic training, our, our initial training. For this is for practitioners, not for, for advocates. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing additional work for advocates out there. Just we have, to, we have to get the word out. We have to get the word out. So if you have a question, you can either tap it in the, type it in the chat and I'll read it, or you can raise your hand and that you go down to the reactions icon at the bottom or top of your screen, depending on how your Zoom is set up. And you'll see the raised hand icon there once you click on that. And I'll go ahead and click on so you can unmute if you would like to do that. So do we, here's your chance for questions. There are a couple of questions in the chat. There's a question, uh, Karen's got her hand up. There's a question about prevention too. Excellent. Okay, I will, Karen, where, go ahead and unmute yourself and then Eileen. Excellent. Okay. Hello. Hey there. Hi. Um, not a practitioner but someone who has dealt with Lyme and the the resources that I had to find on my own, just as you were saying, there were no one. My youngest daughter actually had it and almost was dying because the doctors refused to do the testing. And I got my doctor in California to, to send the test to Massachusetts. And we took her to a private lab and by way of word of mouth, found some doctor in the middle of nowhere that could help us. And then I brought her back to California with me and took her to the doctors that were available that um, I knew could assist us. Um, but one of the things that I did wanna share with you that was extremely helpful for that is um, a device that actually was 
uh, invented for Lyme disease, but they have to be careful about, you know, the FDA and all of that stuff, you know, the legalities that go with that. Mm -hmm. And um, that particular device was extremely instrumental in helping cure. And I'm not going to share it now because I don't know if this is a form that you can do that with. But um, if you're interested, I can share from a personal perspective. of Is it the wave one? Through. Is it the wave one? Pardon? Is it the wave one device? No, it's called oh. AMP coil. Oh, right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, there's, so there's the coil devices, rife machines, frequency-based therapies, um, they can definitely be helpful. I worked with the wave one, which is slightly different to what you're talking about, but it was also developed specifically for Lyme. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, sometimes, not sometimes, like you have to take, you have to empower yourself, right? And take right. back. Well, because a lot of people don't understand that our natural defense system, we, we, our body will increase in mucus. That's why we have the mucus because it's trying to protect our bodies. But the lime we found it, the mucus is where those little microbial little guys with the co-infections go in there and hide. So they're hidden underneath the mucosa. So it's being protected. They're so small and microbial that they're being protected and not being eliminated. So you have to be able to remove that mucosa to be able to annihilate any of the co-infections as well as the lime. Yeah, I figured this out. You know, I, I don't have any, I also had fibromyalgia, was diagnosed myself with fibromyalgia, CFS, IBS, SIBO, all of those. And it's probably been almost 30 years ago that I remember getting a tick bite in Northern California, Yeah, but I was never tested. No, well, Northern California is a hotbed, but it's not really recognized as such. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Karen. You're welcome. All right, Eileen, I'm clicking on you next. Hi, everyone. I Hi. just ran across, um, I think on Facebook, just ran across your um, this webinar um, just maybe an hour ago. Um, and I and what pulled me in was it said what works or you know what's working now. So I'm looking forward to hearing about what's working. I put it a question. I've had Lyme since 1991. Um, I was on a canoe trip in the Ozarks, got a tick bite, took it out, you know, took the tick out, tossed it because we didn't know back in 91 to save the tick. Um, Hold on, I need to put my phone on. I get no texts all day until right now. (laughs) Always the way. Yeah, it was distracting me. So put it on do not disturb. Um, Within I couldn't, I was at a doctor's office with the rash. He tried to diagnose ringworm. I said, no, it's not. I just read a JAMA article. This is, this is, um, this is Lyme disease, but I couldn't get treated for four years. And in those four years within two, um, I had to quit school three weeks before my degree. I was an interpreting going into prosthetics. Haven't worked since 93. I was in a wheelchair um, from 93 until 2017. I was bedridden for 27 years. Then I changed my diet and that turned turned things on its head. So I've made a lot of progress. I haven't actually gone after my infections and my, my question is in the chat. So I'll leave that. I mean, I'm just, I saw a doctor yesterday and he talked about a couple antibiotics. I don't know if they're going to be effective and I don't want to just throw any antibiotics at it. I, I really want to get well. And I think he'd listen to me if I gave him better 
suggestions. Um, I had a narcolepsy <laughs> incident yesterday and I just completely lost my brain. I had aphasia. I couldn't remember things I was supposed to tell them, you know, names and numbers. And so I, it, it, it wasn't wasted, but I can go back and email him and ask him some stuff. Um, I did participate in the CLA fly-in the last two years. And I was asked this year to join the DOD um, Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program on Tick-Borne Diseases. Um, that was one of the things that we asked um, for funding for, uh, for that program. And um, I'm putting in my application to, to join that DOD program. So it'd be pretty cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know about the advocacy that, that I can train for. Because I even though I've been sick for so long, I was so sick that I just didn't have a brain. I mean, being bedridden and I was on my own all that time. And um, so I don't even know exactly what my question is. I kind of wanted to introduce myself and tell you where I was coming from and that I really could use an answer on the antibiotics and what you would take for, um, for biofilms. Cause I asked him about the biofilms, if I should take something for that. And he's like, well, really there's only biofilms, you know, where you have metal in your body and you don't have any metal. I'm like, well, I do in my ankle. <laughs> So it's like, okay, I think he's open to being educated. And I actually had Marty Ross's book with me. I had Horowitz's book and Ingalls book with me as well, but I didn't pull them out because I had no brain. So well, let me, let me say this, Eileen. So firstly, I mean, everyone's going to be different, right? And I, I can't give medical advice about what's going to be right for you. Here's what I can tell you. And I literally sent this email out to my list today. When you treat Lyme, there's three different forms, and I'm going to summarize this because I'm going to try and wrap this into like two or three minutes. When you treat Lyme with antibiotics, there are three different forms of the Borrelia bacteria, the spirochete form, the cell wall deficient form, and the cyst form. Okay. So in very broad terms, think of like a caterpillar, a cocoon, and a butterfly. Theoretically the same creature, but it looks and acts very different in where it, depending on where it is in the life cycle. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, the active forms, the persister forms. So, so essentially when you're treating Lyme with antibiotics, you have to address each of the three forms to be effective. And there's different antibiotics that work on the different forms. Okay, so that's beyond the scope of tonight, but suffice it to say. And I mean, I, 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 so the Beginner's Guide to Lyme Disease is a book where I actually, I outline this, like these are the medications that work for spirochet. These are the medications for cyst. So if you're doing septin, which happens to cover the spirochete forms and Bactrim, which is a medication that it's not really specific for, Bactrim's not really specific for anything. Like it does Bartonella a bit, and Babesia a bit and Lyme a bit, but it's not really specific. So from a Lyme standpoint, you've only got the spirochete forms covered. Okay. okay. So you run the risk of then pushing them into cell wall deficient form and cyst form. Okay. Well, and I've, I've read Zhang's papers, so I just, I just can't hold the information in my head enough sometimes to be able to explain what I want and what I need. Well, and I would invite you to look for a practitioner that you don't need to explain it to. Yeah, they cost at least $250 an hour and I'm on disability and... Okay, you know. sure. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's that's one of those, you know, that's one of those catch-22 kind of situations. But so that's just what I would offer you by way of awareness. And there are places that you can go and find that information about generalities of like, this does this form, this does this form. 
Um, so that information is available. But I would make sure if you're going to do any antibiotics for Lyme, you kind of need to go all in. Like it's not just doing one antibiotic is, is not going to get it done. And then you've got co-infections to consider as well. So when I'm working with someone, I try and figure out by priority, is Lyme really the biggest thing? Or is Babesia the biggest thing? Or is Bartonella the biggest thing? Maybe we can do a single Babesia medication and use herbs for the other guys. So, but just doing one antibiotic for Borrelia is counterproductive because you're going to end up driving it into the more dormant cyst forms where it's just hiding out and then it'll come bite you in the butt later. Yeah, I've been on amoxicillin because this other infectious disease doctor that I've seen since 1994, he'll just give me amoxicillin for a little bit of time and, and says, we'll deal with the persisters later. Well, it's been 31 years. <laughs> <laughs> right, when's later? <laughs> Yeah. When's later, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the thing I saw said, we're talking about what works. So I thought I'd ask what works. <laughs> yeah. Well, what works is being comprehensive and make, you know, if you're going to do antibiotics, making sure that you're covering all the bases. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, McKay, well, I might hand back to you. Well, just sticks. I just want to make one more comment about transmission of Lyme in lesbians. We have, I, I have never come across anything research related that gives us real statistics on that. So all I can tell you is Borrelia has been detected in vaginal secretions and, you know, as well as semen. So I, I, I don't think I would rule it out in a lesbian relationship. And also spirochetes are present in the oral cavity in your mouth. Yes. So, you know, does that mean it gets transmitted? Who knows? You know, yeah. we, we don't have enough studies just on the basics of Lyme disease, let alone those very special cases. Right. So it's just, you know, that's the whole slide where it's $63 per person that doesn't go very far as research goes. All right. So let me, let me just tell you, for those of you who are listening on the recording, those of you here who are practitioners, we have a basic training. If you want to get a deeper cut into what testing you should do, because you're a practitioner, we can get into the specifics of herbal provocation, what antibiotics should either you be using or a practitioner you're working with should be using, a physician or nurse practitioner or prescribing naturopath. This is the first step to really begin to take the tools that you have and really sharpen them and get on board with what it takes to treat Lyme. We then have a comprehensive certification course, but that's a discussion for another day. If you're like hot and heavy and ready to go right now, you can send me an email at uh, support at beyondprotocols.org. And I'll put that in the chat for a second. And the other thing I'd like to offer you who've been here and the way to get the, the free stuff. So I want to thank you for being here. And you've all now completed the advocacy training. And if you'd like a, a, a certificate, I'm happy to send that to you. And along with a Lime Ninja Radio sticker. And I have a couple car magnets, just two. These are all from Lime Warrior. But I do have a lot of the window stickers. And then water bottle stickers. And the reason we have all this shot stuff, all these stickers and things, is to begin the conversation out there. That is what needs to happen. 
Lyme needs to be diagnosed over the backyard fence, and these people need support over the backyard fence. So if you want some of the tchotchkes, go ahead and send me an email at, let me type that in, support at beyond proto. I'm probably not gonna spell it right I popped here. it in too, McKay. Oh, thank you so much. So it won't have to do that. And then if you're interested in the further training, you can head right on over to the limeacademy.com front slash training. And I think I have a slide for that. So I'll go ahead and share that. All right, here we go. And that, that's the URL for the training. And I want to thank you all for being here. Really, to answer Eileen's question, what's working for Lyme disease is to know that it's a complex disease that requires expertise to treat it. Treat it. I mean, that Eileen's the perfect case for this. And it's it's such a catch-22, Dr. Nicola, what you said about that, that she doesn't have access to the physicians who have the proper training to help her, and she's financially just constrained. And that's where we need people like the Bay Area Foundation to step up and provide the funds to just get, I mean, $250 for a, a consultation isn't that much. There are people out there who know a lot about Lyme and charge a little bit less, but not a lot, lot less. You just It costs that much money to run a business. That's something that, that Dr. Nickel, you and I talk, talk all the time. You have to pay the rent. You have to pay your taxes. It's, it's not that they're money hungry. You know, you hear stories about practitioners who charge uh, 10 times that, and, and that starts getting to be an interesting conversation. But anyway, it's not something that can be pulled apart simply. There is no, that's the bad news. There is no magic bullet. I heard a practitioner say once, everything has worked to cure Lyme disease for somebody once. But to find that one thing is, is, unreasonable. It's going to take many things. And by the time you've been sick for a few years, the chances are of you having heavy metals and mycotoxins and MCAS plus viral load addition and maybe other opportunistic infections is highly likely. You're not going to get out of that situation quickly. And you need, again, a multi-systemic physician, naturopath, somebody who can look at the entire presentation of your case rather than, okay, I'm just going to look at your hormone disruption here. And really, I'm not up to speed on infectious type of thing. So we're just going to throw hormones at you. That's not going to help you heal. You really need somebody to see the whole picture. And that's what makes it so difficult. And that's why we're doing this training. And if that's something that you want to get involved with, please reach out to us and we'd like to help. All right, Dr. Nicole, I'd like to give you the absolute last word before I get on another soapbox and talk to the rest of the night. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I just also want to thank you all for being here. Um, it's, you know, we can all make a difference. That's the thing, whether you're a patient or a practitioner, we can all make a difference. We can all be there for somebody who's struggling and, and you know, try and give them some hope and some encouragement and, you know, point, get people pointed in the right direction. We need to just get people pointed in the right direction, put the first steps, first foot in front of the other. And from there we build on it and build on it. And, and, you know, I've worked with some incredibly unwell people who are now in life thriving, doing all the things. Um, and so it is possible. It is possible. So, 
I just want to sort of end on that hopeful point and uh and just yeah thanks for being here it's been it's been great spending time with you dr nicola thank you for the time and energy and love that you put into this very very debilitating disease and so many people need your help so thank you thank you thank you so yeah, much you're so and, welcome all right everybody have a great night and hopefully we'll catch you around on the internet take care Good night. Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.